A preacher never forgets the first time they do a sermon. I know that, that I remember mine quite well. It was my first year of seminary in Chicago, and I hadn't even taken a preaching class yet. But it was in the summer, and I was working some part-time jobs and whatnot, and there was a bulletin board where they would post opportunities for ministry or this or that. And one of them said they needed a, a, a pulpit supply guest speaker in Princeton, Illinois. I didn't know where Princeton, Illinois was, uh, so I looked it up. It was a couple hours west of Chicago, and I thought, well, this sounds good. I inquired a little bit more, and they said, well, if you come to Princeton, Illinois, we will uh, put you up in a bed and breakfast, you and your wife, for the night. Uh, we'll feed you and we'll give you 50 bucks. I thought, what a great deal, you know. So I talked with Nancy. We decided we would do it and we drove to Princeton, Illinois. Now, Princeton, Illinois, just think Lindsberg, only it's in Illinois. It's about the same size, Swedish town, uh, bed and breakfasts and shops and things like that town, surrounded by cornfields. And um, the church, very traditional church, big stone church, uh, stained glass, the whole bit. And it was a great, great people, wonderful people, great experience. But when you come into to your first sermon, you're a little bit nervous. You get a little um, apprehensive and you plan your work and you get ready for it. But you're not quite sure how it is going to go. I remember very clearly the building. I remember the passage I preached out of. It was um, Galatians 6, the last part where it talks about God is not. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you reap destruction. If you sow to the spirit, you reap eternal life. So don't get tired in doing good for others, especially those in the body of Christ. So I took that and I preached and I, I think it went okay. Afterwards, people were really nice. A couple hundred people in the church, they came by and they shook my hand and said, nice job. Thank you for coming. Things like that. There was one lady, however, uh, I couldn't quite make out what she said. She kind of spoke low, a little bit older. And I think she said, nice try, Sonny. Something like that. I'm not quite sure, but I think that's what she said. And um, anyhow, you just don't forget your first sermon. Well, in the passage that was read just a second ago by Aaron, we come to Luke chapter four. And lo and behold, This is the first recorded sermon of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have the whole sermon. We have the scripture that he read for the day. We have the opening kind of line and a few other things he says in the last part of the chapter. And by the way, at the end of of his message, guess what happens? They take him to the cliff and they try to kill him, but he gets away from him. So hopefully that won't be the case here today. Um, So Jesus gets ready to preach his first sermon, and I'm sure he had all sorts of thoughts and feelings But he had a little bit different complication than I had. It wasn't just some random town in the middle of a rural area in Illinois. This was his hometown. People knew him there. This was his home synagogue. They had known him before he was born. They'd known of him. They knew the scandal. You know, his mother was pregnant with him before she was married. She had this wild story that she was still a virgin and that, in fact, the Holy Spirit had made her pregnant and this and that. And she and, and she and Joseph get married um, after she's pregnant. But it's, it's kind of a, a tough beginning for Jesus in a small town. Um, from what we know, though, I think things went pretty well after that. They, they lived there and Jesus is known as a very precocious child. There's an incident there's a, where he uh, know he's, he's left behind by accident in Jerusalem, he's teaching and there's a maze. He's talking about the scriptures. They're amazed by how how well he understands God's word. So he grows up with his parents. His father, Joseph, was a carpenter. He would apprentice with him. At this time, Jesus is 30 years old or so. Uh, his mother is still living. Most people believe that his father was gone at this time, deceased at this time. And there's a buzz beginning to gather around Jesus. 
he's gathered 12 disciples around him and um, people are excited. They're like, okay, we might have a local celebrity here, a local rabbi. This would be fantastic. And he begins to. And so he comes to his hometown and everybody shows up. Everybody comes to the church that he would have grown up, the church where he had a synagogue, where he would have celebrated his bar mitzvah, where he would have learned the scriptures, where he had gone with his father when he was old enough to go with the other men and to learn the scriptures. This is where he was going to give his first sermon. So kind of picture this. It would have been a building uh, with uh, um, with a balcony and the balcony would have been for the, the women and the daughters, the wives who would have come to listen. The men would have sat below around in, in chairs around the outside of edge. And in the middle, there would have been sort of a pulpit or a place where the rabbi for the day would sit and teach. There was also a place where you'd stand up and read the scripture for the day. And so that's kind of the scenario here. And, and people are excited. They want to hear what their, their hometown, maybe hero, is going to have to say on that day. And so into the setting, Jesus begins. He gets the scroll. He unrolls it. His finger comes to the place that he's going to read out of Isaiah 61. And Jesus begins with, the spirit of the Lord is on me. And he begins to talk and these old ancient words from the prophet Isaiah begin to take on new meaning. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus, we're told, rolled the scripture back up. He hands it back. He goes and he sits down at the place where he's now going to teach and explain the scripture. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the, the people in this room must have thought, well, wait a second. Did he just say what I thought he said? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Before we jump into this passage a little bit, though, let's set the context for you. Jesus, of course, this is his first beginning of his first sermon. But right before this in chapter four, we're told that Jesus has just gone through, is going through this time of deep and intense spiritual testing. It says the Holy Spirit leads him out into the desert and he fasts and he prays for 40 days. He's getting focused. He's getting in touch with his heavenly father. He's getting ready to do what he's called to do. Now, Satan does not want Jesus to succeed, of course. And so in Luke four, we're told that Satan tempts Jesus three separate times. He's trying to get him to to slip up, to fall, to get him off track and off focus. So remember the story? The first time Satan comes to him and he gets, tries to get him to focus on his need for food. He's very hungry, understandably. He's been fasting. And Jesus passes the test. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on the word of God. Next time Satan comes to him and, and Jesus, of course, has left his place of power and authority in heaven. Now he's a poor, simple carpenter. He's soon to be an itinerant preacher. And Satan attempts to get him to focus on what he has given up, his prestige, his power. He hopes that the riches of the world offered to him will get him off mission. Jesus, again, passes the test. Remember, Jesus has all power available to him. Satan knows this. And so he he tries to attack him here. And Jesus, he knows that Jesus can call angels and they'll come to his aid. And 
he tries to distract and derail Jesus by appealing to this very human desire that we all have at times to kind of show people what we got, you know, to kind of impress other people, to let them know, hey, I can do this. Again, Jesus passes the test. He doesn't flinch. He stays on point. He could have focused on himself and his own needs, but instead he puts his father agenda first. And this time of testing only serves to crystallize his purpose and his mission. You know, we often ask, at least a few years ago, there was this fad in Christian circles, WWJD, remember that? What would Jesus do? Well, very clearly here, Jesus tells us in his first sermon, this is what I came to do. This is what I'm all about. This is who I am. And so he begins with his first message, his first sermon, the beginning of his ministry, by starting with these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, when Jesus read this passage from Isaiah 61, it would have caught their attention. It would have been understood by every Jew listening that when Jesus sat down and began his teaching, now notice we don't hear the rest of the sermon, just bits and pieces, that when he begins with a line, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, when he said that, they would have known a couple of things because they knew Isaiah's prophecy. They would have known first that these words were to be applied only to the Messiah, the chosen one. Who was he, this homegrown boy, born in scandal, to claim these, this prophecy for himself? And two, they knew that these verses referred to the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee, uh, just in case you're a little unfamiliar with it, uh, in the Old Testament, the Lord tells the people of Israel that every seventh day of the week would be a Sabbath, right? The day of rest, the day of worship and focus on God. But that also every seventh year would be a Sabbath year. It would be a time when the land would not be farmed and worked, sort of a fallow year, okay? The land would be set aside and could rest and rejuvenate. And also that every seventh Sabbath year, in other words, every 50th year, there would be what was called the year of Jubilee. And in that year, in the year of Jubilee, all slaves would be set free. All whose poverty had forced them to sell their lands would receive them back. Those who had lost family members into slavery or to an imprisonment because of debt or whatever would be reunited with their loved ones. So you can see why it was called the Jubilee. It was a time of celebration, of joy and of freedom. And so Jesus says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He was saying that this is what I have come to do. This is what I have come to initiate. He came to bring good news to the poor. The kind that would have them dancing in the street. He came to bring broken families together, to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the hurting. He came to free slaves, to open the doors of darkness, to unite, untie people's hands, to unfold their wings, to proclaim the acceptable year, the year of God's grace, the year of Jubilee, not just once every 50 years. That was already the case or supposed to be the case, wasn't always practiced. But Jesus came to bring a worldwide Jubilee every year and every day. That would be accessible to all people at all times. That was his mission. Karl Marx's mission was to spread his communist ideology worldwide, right? 
And for most of the 20th century, his followers single-mindedly worked toward that mission. Bill Gates' mission is to, is to dominate and shape the computer industry and information age. His employees have succeeded in great part due to their focus and commitment to that vision and mission. If we as a church know Jesus' mission, his purpose, and I think we do, we cannot allow anything or anyone to distract us from that. If we as a church know what Jesus' agenda was when he walked this earth, what was most important to him, what he was all about, then his agenda must be ours too. But too often, we, the disciples of Jesus, even if we acknowledge that his mission was to bring good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recover of sight for the blind, release the oppressed, too often we can fall into the trap of planning and programming and, and functioning as if his mission was to give us a, a safe and secure place, a, a place where we can hang with those who believe like us and, and act like us, where we can debate about scripture and, and be together, which is a wonderful thing, but it should never be at the cost of the lost and the hurting, the imprisoned, the blind, the oppressed. This church was founded in 1878, hard to believe. That's a long time ago. On the belief that what Jesus wants is not a cozy clique of people who have their little Christian act together in their own little corner of their own world. What Jesus wants for us is that we will want what he wants. And he challenges us to lay aside our desires, our preferences, our agenda for ourselves and for our church and say, this is what we are to be about. So Jesus says we're to preach good news to the poor. And for the poor to hear the good news, we've got to know them, right? We've got to be close enough to them. We've, they've got to be able to, to trust us and know us. Guess how many people in Sling County make less than $25,000 a year? 42%, according to the census. 42%. The needs are vast in our community. And when you're struggling to get by, unless you know that someone cares about you enough to get to know you and help you, well, you're probably not going to pay a whole lot of attention when they want to talk to you about the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. We've been given the resources and the mandate from the Lord to preach good news to those whom Jesus calls the poor. They're at our doorstep. And we are responsible for how we respond. And what Jesus proclaims here is reality. The year of the Lord's favor has come. And what that means is that freedom and healing is at hand. For all who trust in Christ, for all who reach out to him. And God has chosen to provide through us. So the question is, will we partner with him? Will we take risks? Will we step outside our comfort zone to not only preach good news, but to be good news? If we want to be like Jesus, we want to be about what he was about. We must do those things. Next, Jesus says, I have come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Certainly, that includes those who are incarcerated, but I think his view of this is even more comprehensive because let's be frank with each other. Many people, many of us at different times, maybe even today, are held prisoner to certain things, right? It can be an addiction, a bad pattern, dysfunction. It can be guilt or sin or, or shame 
over things we've done in the past, things we believe about ourselves. Those things can become an anchor to people and drain their life of joy. People are looking for a way to be set free. I mean, how many of us know somebody who's struggling with alcohol or drug addiction? How many of us have been touched by divorce or broken homes? How many have friends, coworkers, family members who, who live unhappy, frustrated, stunted lives because of dysfunction or guilt or poor choices? How many of us know people who maybe aren't struggling, air quotes, but nevertheless they're prisoners of workaholism or materialism or the insane pace that so many of us keep as families? Jesus came to set people free. And we are called to be partners with him in his mission of liberation and and safety and salvation and freedom. In the the book, The Word and Power Church, Doug Bannister uh, tells a story story from uh, World War II. He writes, The spring of 1940 found Hitler's panzer divisions mopping up French troops and preparing for a siege of Great Britain. The Dutch had already surrendered, as had the Belgians. The British army foundered on the coast of France in the channel port of Dunkirk. Nearly a quarter million young British soldiers and over 100,000 Allied troops faced capture or death. Hitler's troops, only a few miles away in the hills of France, closed in for an easy kill. The Royal Navy had enough ships to save barely 17,000 men, just a small portion, and the House of Commons in London were told to brace themselves for hard and heavy tidings. Then while a despairing world watched with fading hope, a bizarre fleet of ships appeared on the horizon of the English Channel. Trawlers, tugs, fishing sloops, lifeboats, sailboats, pleasure craft, an island ferry named Gracie Fields, even the America's Cup Challenger Endeavor, all captained and sailed, manned by civilian sailors, sailors sped to the rescue. This ragtag armada eventually rescued 338,682 soldiers and returned them home to the shores of England while the Air Force of the Allies jockeyed with the German Air Force over the Channel. It was one of the most remarkable and amazing naval operations in history. The church, likewise, is God's ragtag armada. We are a mix of flawed individuals, imperfect people, on a rescue mission commissioned by God. And if we are not being used of God to bring people to safety and freedom, we have failed. Because we're not following the example and the agenda of Jesus Christ, if we're not about that. Jesus said in Luke 10:45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like our master, Jesus Christ, we are here not to be served, but to serve. As ministers of this church, and that includes all of us, we must not think in terms of how can this church meet my needs and reflect my preferences, but rather how can this church meet my neighbor's needs and be sensitive to them? You see the difference? We must be outward focused, not existing primarily for the benefit of Christians, but for the benefit of those who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on discipleship and spiritual growth. I mean, our mission statement does say deeper in Christ. 
right? But it also says further in mission. We must do all that we can to be diligent that we are in line with Jesus' agenda and mission. The movie Gettysburg, based on the killer angels of Michael Shera, brings to life the three bloodiest days in American history. The first scenes take place a couple days before the epic battle at Gettysburg. Colonel Joshua L. Chamberlain, played by Jeff Daniels, is the leader of the 20th Maine Regiment, and he learns that his regiment is going to receive 120 Union soldiers that have run away. They've mutinied. Mutinied. And so he, he gets permission from his, his, um, his superiors to shoot any of them who do not cooperate and go to the front lines with him. He tells these men that he's been told about what they've done. And he admits, there's nothing I can do today. We're moving out in a few minutes. We'll be moving all day, in fact. I've been ordered to take you men with me. I'm told that if you don't come, I can shoot you. Well, you know I'm not going to do that. Maybe somebody else will, but I won't. So that's that. But here's the situation. The whole rebel army is up the road waiting for us. This is no time for an argument. I tell you, we could surely use you fellows. We're now well below half strength. Whether you fight or not, that's up to you. Whether you come along is, well, you're coming. You know who we are. But if you fight alongside of us, there's a few things you must know. He says, this regiment was formed last summer in Maine. There were over a thousand of us at that time. Now there are less than 300. All of us volunteered to fight for the Union, just as you did. Some came mainly because we were bored at home and thought this might be kind of fun or get a little bit of glory. Some came because we were ashamed not to. Many of us came because it was the right thing to do, and all of us have seen men die. But this is a different kind of army. If you look back through history, you'll see men fighting for pay for women for some other kind of loot. They fight for land power because a king leads them there or simply because they like killing. But we are here for something new. This has not happened much in the history of the world. We are an army out to set others free. As God's people, we are to be a different kind of group, organization, institution, a different kind of army. We are to be an army out to set men, women, and children free. We are to be about bringing the good news of Jesus Christ into their lives so they're set free from sin and from guilt free to live and to love, free to know grace and love and joy and peace. And I believe that Jesus is challenging us this morning through his scriptures, just as he challenged his home church back in Nazareth almost 2,000 years ago. The spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus said, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is Jesus' agenda. What is ours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for the truth that is revealed to us through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for what he was all about when he walked this earth, what he's about now um, through his Holy Spirit and through his word and And what an amazing thing to think that he partners with us, his people. Help us, Lord, to not give in to Satan's distractions, but to focus on why we're here. 
Just as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, so are we too as well. So help us, Father. Help us, Lord, to focus on those who need to know the love and the joy and the peace, the salvation and the freedom that comes only through faith in your Son, Jesus. Help us to do so as a church and help us to do so as individuals through Christ our Lord. Amen.